We're going to be continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians this morning. The title of our message is Four Exhortations. And for those who are going to be keeping track of the key word, the word is exhortations. And so every time I say that word, I want the the kids and anybody else who wants to participate to make a little tally mark, try to keep track of how many times that word is uttered during this sermon, and come up and tell me how many you counted after the sermon. I'd love to, to hear your report on that, okay? So, we're going to begin by reading the passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 19 through 22. Let's stand for the reading of God's word together. In verse 19 we read, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness and the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has inspired and moved men of old to write these things down so that we would have them as the word of God, the inerrant, totally efficient, totally effective, totally sufficient Word of God. And we ask God that it would accomplish the purpose for which you have given it to us, and that we would come away from this place today equipped by your Word to live for your glory and to participate in the body of Christ as we should. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a review of the last message in this series, we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16 through 18, and there we read a series of exhortations as well. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We saw that these three commands must all be obeyed by faith. That we are not uh, uh, responsible to screw up our spirituality and somehow muscle through and obey these things, but that each of them is a natural result of believing. And so we saw that we rejoice in the truth that what is of absolute value to us is absolutely secure for us in Christ. And therefore, rejoicing is a natural uh, result of that faith in the finished work of Christ. We saw that we pray without ceasing uh, simply by making every thought we have a conversation with God, the God who is always there, always listening, always caring about what we are thinking. And so we turn our thoughts toward God, and it becomes an unceasing prayer. We saw that we give thanks in every situation because we honestly believe that 
we always have far more and far better than we could ever deserve. And so thankfulness is the natural result of that faith, that we are truly blessed. Even going through the hardest of times, we know that these other things are true, and therefore we can still be thankful. And so we not only walk by faith, we also rejoice by faith. We pray by faith. We give thanks to God by faith. All of these things are the working out of the uh, faith that we have in God through Christ. And so now we turn to four additional exhortations. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 through 22, we find a powerful and practical set of exhortations for all believers. Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul urges the Thessalonian church, first of all, to not quench the Spirit. Secondly, to not despise prophecies. Third, to test all things and hold fast what is good. And fourth, to abstain from every form of evil. Now, the first question that we have to answer with regard to this passage is, are these four exhortations related to one another, or are they independent of one another? Is this just a list of exhortations, or is it addressing some specific situation? Are they pointing to some specific situation in the early church? Not just the church in Thessalonia, but also in the other churches as well. Or are these just general, standalone instructions that apply in many situations? Now, the reason that that's important to answer is... Uh, that as we explore the meaning of each command, it's going to be affected by our uh, confidence that these are either separate commands or that they are a set of commands that all relate to one another in a particular situation. Okay, so here's scenario number one, the possibility. This is that these commands, these exhortations, are instructions uh, to allow the church in Thessalonica to operate in the charismatic gifts as they are intended to do. Now, we see this as we read the passage again, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of of evil. So in this scenario, uh, would relate this passage to passages like 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 39. There we read, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, if this is so, then in this context, quenching the spirit would be seen primarily as forbidding oneself or others to move in the gifts of the Spirit. Now, nine out of ten Bible commentators believe that this is the case, that Paul is referring to training the church on how to use or move in the gifts of the Spirit 
and not misuse them. <clears throat> and they see this as, as part of the charismatic experience of the early church. And I want to emphasize, regardless of whether we believe that these gifts continue today or that they have ceased to operate in the past, in the first century, we can still look at what Paul says to them in that context at that time and get a sense of what's going on, whether it continues to happen today or not. Now, John MacArthur, one of my favorite Bible teachers and preachers, he has some concerns and he differs. He disagrees with that 9 out of 10. Okay? He would be the 1 out of 10 who disagrees. And so he has the concern that 1 Thessalonians was written before the church in Corinth was even planted. And that if that is the case, which we know historically that it is, uh, then this would be a matter concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit then Paul would have written far more on the topic to the Thessalonians. Okay? He wouldn't just give them a toss off of a few exhortations and walk away from this issue if this was in fact intended to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry of moving in the gifts of the Spirit. So Mark Arthur feels that these passages are a list of generally applicable exhortations. They don't have to be seen as a set they don't have to be seen as dealing with a particular issue. Okay? Now, I'm concerned that MacArthur's position overlooks the fact that Paul would very likely have provided all of that instruction while he was still with them. And uh, the reason that I am uh, taking that position is that if these gifts were operating among the Thessalonians as they did in all of the other churches, then he would have taught about their use. And so now he is simply reminding them of things that he's already taught them while he was with them. Now if we say, well, he was only with them for a short time. Yes, but did they receive the Holy Spirit? Were they moving in these gifts of the Spirit, which was obviously happening in the book of Acts constantly, would he not have explained to them what's going on and how these gifts operate? In other words, he would have probably, in a face-to-face -face instruction, given 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 to the church in Thessalonica while he was there. In other words, these guys are not in the dark about what's going on. And he's reminding them now of what he taught them. So that's the understanding that I have of this passage. It's hard for me to believe that these commands were not in response to some specific situations that were arising in all of the churches. And I'll show you why I feel that way. Now, the second scenario, and this is the one that... Uh, John MacArthur sees as being the more accurate of the two, is that this is an issue of quenching the spirit that is accomplished by grieving the spirit. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, in this scenario, the exhortation would be, in essence, to avoid all the sins of the flesh that would grieve the Holy Spirit to the point of quenching the holy fire of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that's why MacArthur sees this as being of general applicability, uh, that people are always going to be needing these exhortations, and it is important not to quench the Holy Spirit by uh, ongoing sin. And as we're going to see in a moment, also false doctrine. I want to read to you two passages in which the same phrase is used by Paul to describe his concern about sin in the local church. The first is Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7 through uh, 10. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you have no other mind. And this in the context is regarding trusting in religious works like circumcision. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So Paul is saying here that a little bit of sin in the church has this tendency to spread in the church. And he uses the analogy of leaven or yeast in a lump of dough. You can't just put a little bit of leaven in a lump of dough and expect it to stay where you put it. It, it begins to permeate the entire lump of dough. Now he uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians 5 or 6, where he says, your glorying is not good. Uh, do, not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now in this case, we're dealing with a church in which somebody is living in a gross sin, very publicly, evidently, and they are seeing this in some way as demonstrating how liberated they are uh, from those old uh, musty uh, moral standards, okay? That they're, they're in Christ now. And there's, as Paul has written, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So they've just misunderstood what it means uh, to be redeemed and no longer under the law, they're treating this gross sin as though it's no big deal. And in fact, uh, kind of glorying in it and saying, see, we're free from those old laws. And Paul's saying, no, no, you, you, you misunderstand. This persuasion, he says, he says uh, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, a new lump of dough, since you truly are unleavened. You've been cleansed. You've been purged. You, you are no longer living in this immorality. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This is not just the feast of Passover. This is the feast of, of reconciliation, the feast of redemption. Let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul's using the analogy again of how leaven, how yeast works its way through and permeates the whole lump of dough. And the church is that lump of dough. And so we want to not look the other way. When someone is living in open sin, or even when we become aware of someone living in secret sin, we are to uh, take action in order to uh, purge that from the church. And that's where church discipline comes into play. So let's take a look at the passage again. We've got these two scenarios. One is the scenario that this is training the church in how to move in the gifts of the Spirit and not misuse those gifts. The other scenario is that this is instruction on how to not uh, allow sin to creep into the church and, and permeate the church. And let's just read it again with these two scenarios in mind. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, having read both scenarios and looking at the passage again, and this is not a cop-out, I believe it can be both. That we can see this passage as speaking to both scenarios. Quenching the Holy Spirit can be done by grieving the Spirit with our own sins or with our false doctrines, our misunderstandings of what Paul's taught. But it can also be done by forbidding others or even forbidding ourselves from moving in the spiritual gifts that God has given to us. Uh, and so we can look at it both ways. Now, I am looking at this today past tense. Okay? I want you to keep your thoughts in terms of how did they understand this at that time when the gifts were operating. Okay? Now, if you see this as something that should be happening today, then you are not a cessationist. Okay? But if you see this as something that does not happen today, then you are in that large camp within the body of Christ who believes these gifts have ceased to operate. But we can still benefit from understanding what they were being taught at that time when these gifts were, in fact, manifesting. So evidently, the gift of tongues and of prophecy were already starting to annoy church leaders in the first century. Okay? In other words, all the churches at this time are charismatic churches. And uh, that's not comfortable for those who are Bible scholars. So, otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to write, do not forbid speaking in tongues. He wouldn't even have to say that if somebody out there wasn't trying to say, stop that. He wouldn't have to say, do not despise prophecy, if there weren't people within the church that were just saying, I've had it with this. This is too crazy. You know, I can't, I don't want this. I, stop that, right? I don't want to listen to that prophecy. And so if Paul is coming back at this and saying, don't forbid speaking in tongues and don't despise prophecy, then evidently Paul, and as we're going to see others, 
felt at that time that these were important dimensions of the Christian life, not to be swept aside because of their inconvenience. Because the more immature a person would be as a Christian, the more likely they would be to misuse these gifts. And you can see how the church could become a circus at that point, as we see in the church in Corinth. So let's go back for a moment and take another look at who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do. First of all, he's not a thing. Okay? He's not the force. Okay? He's not some kind of a, a influence. He is a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15 and verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, and it's obvious in the context that this is the Holy Spirit, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He, not it, he will testify of me. In John 16 and verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You know, for for example... Uh, telling this group of Jewish men, oh, by the way, we're going to be letting all the Gentiles into the church. Okay? You remember how Peter choked on that one, right? He said, no way, Lord. Peter had a way of saying, no way, Lord. That's a contradiction in terms. If he's Lord, you don't say no way. Well, it took a while for these Jewish men to come to grips with the fact that God has a purpose and a plan for the gospel to reach all the nations of the earth and that there will be people from every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping together and uh, that Peter is supposed to just rise, kill and eat, right? (laughs) Eat all these things that you've been told from your childhood you can't eat. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Well, you know, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Notice that word, bear. You cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. That's where prophecy, the predictive prophecy comes into play. He will tell you of things to come, things that haven't happened yet, but that will happen at some point in the future. And he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this is the Holy Spirit we're talking about. This is the person, the third person of the Trinity. Now the Holy Spirit illuminates the minds of those who trust in Christ. I don't think anyone would say that that has ceased to happen. That is still something that the Holy Spirit does in our lives today. The Holy Spirit is the better alternative to Christ's physical presence. Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away, because if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit. You might feel like this is as good as it gets, but it's not, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit And he's with you, but he's going to be in you. And you're going to be able to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and speak in the Spirit and 
All these things are going to happen because Jesus has left. He's sending the Holy Spirit as the better alternative to his presence. Now, the Spirit of God manifests himself in several different ways. Primarily, the two categories are the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, we don't have time to go into all of it, but I want to just give you a brief glimpse into what was going on in regard to the gifts of the Spirit at this time, because it it plays in specifically to our passage today about uh, not quenching the Spirit, not uh, despising prophecy, and so on. So here's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries. In other words, the way these gifts are used are going to differ one from another, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities. The way that these things are manifested within these different ministries as they are using these different gifts are going to not look exactly the same in everybody's life, but it will be the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And that is profit as in the benefit of all. So the gifts, the ministries, and the activities were all manifestations of the same Holy Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Now, the Holy Spirit was manifested in two, uh, the gifts of the Spirit were manifested in two main categories, the speaking gifts and the power gifts. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom. That's not a power gift, that's a speaking gift through the same Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, another speaking gift. To another, faith. I've I've italicized the power gifts. Faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healings, another power gift by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. Now there's a power gift by the same Spirit. To another, prophecy. That's a speaking gift. That's a word of prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. That's a power gift. That's an ability. And to another, different kinds of tongues. That's a speaking gift. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. That's another speaking gift. But to, each, to, but to one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, and these last three words are very important, as he wills. Not as we will. Okay, so when these gifts operated in the first century, it was because of the Holy Spirit's will, not the will of the individual. All right? Now, all of the miraculous works that we see Jesus doing during his earthly ministry can be seen as manifestations of these very same spiritual gifts operating in an unlimited way. We're talking about raising the dead. Now, there's a miracle, right? We're talking about healings, 
Amazing healings. Those are miracles. So there's nothing in this list that we cannot find happening in the life of Jesus as he serves uh, obeying his Father, moving in the power of the Holy Spirit without limitation. Uh, that, is, that is what he's doing. He is a man. He's God, but he's operating as a man who is full of the Holy Spirit, and he's ministering to the needs of people around him as he goes. So this is why Jesus could tell his disciples that they would do the same works as he did, and and even greater works than these, because he's going to the Father. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. So what we see happening is, as the Holy Spirit comes upon the church on the day of Pentecost, and I just want to make the observation that when you read the first chapter of Acts, Peter is using Scripture in ways you would never get away with in seminary. Okay, and he, they're picking somebody to be an alt, uh, a, 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 somebody to take the place of Judas Iscariot in a way that is just kind of okay. It sounds like a committee, right? We don't know what to do. Uh, we're waiting for God to, to to pour out His Spirit, and and we were told to wait here. So hey, let's choose somebody to take Judas's place. But when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Peter is a different guy. His preaching is different. His confidence is different, right? So what I think we're seeing in the first chapter is here's what it's like to try to do church without the Holy Spirit. It's power. And now here's chapter two. Here's what it looks like when you're doing church with the Holy Spirit's power. And from that point on, you're doing church with the Holy Spirit's power in the first century. Now, this is also why Peter could command his readers to speak and to serve in supernatural manifestations, supernatural ways. So look at this passage. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's not your typical observation or opinion, right? Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. Do you see the two categories there? There's the speaking and there's the acting, the action. And why do we do this? That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the assumption of Jesus and Peter and Paul was that all the Christians would both speak and act with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe it would be a mistake to think that spiritual gifts first appeared in Corinth. Okay, That is the first place in which we get very clear instruction because they were turning services into a circus, right? All kinds of things happening. He's having to tell some people to be quiet. He's encouraging other people to speak up. And it's just, 
He's trying to get everything to be done decently and in order. But, take a look at this passage in John chapter 4 and verse 22. There's something here that's often skipped over and not given the attention that it deserves. He begins by saying to the woman at the well, when she's asking about worship and asking about God, he makes this observation. He says, you, speaking of the Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. Now, he is not saying here, and in the Hebrew or in the Greek, it's, it's very clear. He is not saying you don't know what you're worshiping. He's not saying that. He's saying you worship what you do not know. And then he says, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. We have revelation. We have the, uh, the revelation of God through the scriptures and the prophets. He says, but the hour is coming. And now is. It's arrived. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, if we're still too, talking about the same two categories, worshiping the Father in the spirit is something that goes beyond our comprehension, goes beyond our cognitive understanding. Okay? But we also worship God in truth, which would deal with all the sound doctrine that comes from the revelation that we have in Scripture. So, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So evidently, worshiping what you do not know corresponds to being in the spirit as opposed to knowing what you worship which would correspond to the truth so we have spirit and truth worship that goes beyond our comprehension and our understanding and worship that is founded upon the revelation of God and clear teachings of the scripture and the father is seeking those who worship him in both ways. The Father is not wanting just an academic worship, neither is he wanting just a mystical experience worship. He's wanting to bring these two dimensions together in one worshiper, and we're each intended to be those kinds of worshipers. Now, do we see this anywhere else? We find spirit and truth dichotomy elsewhere in the New Testament. And so when we turn to the book of Acts in chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit gave them utterance. Now notice this. And the, those who were hearing them in Acts 2 verse 8, it says, And how is it that we hear each in our own language, speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So the, the disciples are speaking in an unknown tongue. They don't understand, but people around them do understand because they're speaking in the languages of their own uh, origin, their own countries. Now, I, I point that out in order to say that when these folks in the first century were speaking in tongues, they didn't know what they were saying. 
That's part of why Paul says we don't know what to pray, but the Spirit gives us, you know, utterings with groanings that cannot be vocalized. So the Holy Spirit's praying on our behalf, and we don't understand what he's saying, but we know he's praying on our behalf in ways that we that go beyond our comprehension. Okay? Now, take a look at this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Do you see that? I'm praying in my spirit, and I don't understand. There's no understanding going on here. So what is the conclusion, Paul writes? I will pray with my spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Do you see the dichotomy there? Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. I don't want to walk away from the truth and just become this crazy charismatic. I don't want to walk away from the spirit and become just cold and academic. God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so our spirit is edified, even though our understanding is unfruitful, and our mind is edified, and this is not necessarily going to be something that is a great spiritual experience. We need both Calvin and... Uh, who, who could we plug in there for the other guy? I won't even try. Let's just move on. Evidently, worshiping, praying, and singing in the spirit was done without understanding. This may be what Jesus meant when he referred to the Samaritans as actively worshiping what you do not know. When you look into what the Samaritans were doing, they were mystical. Their doctrine was not based upon revelation of Scripture, but upon spiritual experience. And if you could understand it, then that kind of ruined it. They wanted it to be beyond comprehension. They worshipped what they could not, the the unknowable God, right? The God who is just totally mind-blowing, you know? You can just kind of see how that could go if you didn't have sound doctrine. They would just, you know, create your own deity. So, so when and how did these spiritual gifts manifest in the first century? Well, we get some clear reference here in 1 Corinthians 12:11 But one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills for as the body is one and has many members but all the members of that one body being many are one body so also is Christ so we have one body with many members, all of them being animated, moved by the one Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles, and then gifts of healings, and helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. Do you see what we have here? We have a kind of a um, uh, 
division of labor going on. Different roles are being played by different members of the one body, all of them being moved and equipped, empowered by the same Spirit. But notice these next questions. These are, are, are uh, questions that are intended to be answered with the word no. Okay. Are all apostles? Well, that's kind of obvious, right? No. Are all prophets? Nope. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak in tongues? And the charismatic in the back of the room goes, Yes! No. The answer is no. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret those tongues? No. So he says, But earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. So, what were the best gifts? And what was the more excellent way? The more excellent way was the way of love. Spiritual gifts were triggered, if I can use that term, by love for one another. Such gifts were always the best gifts because they were the gifts that were needed in each situation to meet the specific need. Now, I've been real busy this last week putting in a kitchen. I have a toolbox, okay? And my toolbox has got a lot of different tools in it. So what's the best tool? It depends. If I'm trying to put a nail in, a screwdriver is not very good. A hammer will do just fine. If I'm trying to put a screw in, I need a screwdriver. And I don't beat the screw with the handle of the screwdriver either. You know, I I put it in the way it's supposed to work. So the best gift in any situation is the one you need. The one you need to meet that particular need. If you need a miracle, a a word of knowledge is probably not going to be much appreciated. Okay? Hey, I can tell you what's what's going on here. Oh, thank you very much. Okay? I sure wish you had the gift of miracles. So, let's take a look. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Now, the idea of a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal, that's just annoying. Okay? Paul is saying, if I have this gift of tongues, and I can speak in the tongues of men and angels, and I don't have love, it's annoying. Because what are you doing? You're just wearing that gift like a merit badge, right? And then he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, whoa, so that I could remove mountains, which is an, the analogy for having great faith. Jesus said, if you have faith, you can remove mountains. But if I have not love, I am nothing. How could that be? How, how could you have all of that spiritual power and, and still be nothing? And the answer is, 
it, these gifts are all about being able to deliver the goods to those you love. That's what they're for. And so in the early church, we see this happening. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Pursue love. Love one another. And desire spiritual gifts. Why? So that you can deliver on that love you have for one another. That's what the early church was doing. He says, he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Notice that the purpose of these gifts in the first century, while these things were happening routinely, was to allow the members of the body of Christ to serve one another with the power that God supplies. Whether it was a speaking gift or whether it was a power gift, it was always intended to be triggered by love in order to deliver the benefits of the Holy Spirit's power. So it is intense love for one another in times of need and an intense desire for the spiritual gifts that would meet that need that manifests each gift as he wills. I can't just do this on my own. The Holy Spirit has to move as he wills. And that's what he was doing in the early church in this first century. The best gifts were like the best tools in my toolbox. The best gifts were the ones that solved the problem and met the need of that moment. And evidently, prophecy was one of the most versatile gifts in the Holy Spirit's toolbox. So, this means that those who would prophesy were actually loving others intensely in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what they were doing. So when a prophecy appears, it's because somebody loves somebody and a manifestation of the Holy Spirit takes place. Let me show you again, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the, the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want you to imagine what it must have been like for these early Christians to have every word and every attempt to minister actually be a manifestation of a gift of the Holy Spirit. Imagine what that would have been like. And that this is what is happening in all the churches, even the baby churches. The Christians in those baby churches are loving one another, not with just their own power, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. And not with just the ability to do a miracle, but with the ability to speak a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. You see what's going on here? It's a supernatural community driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what God used in order to grow the church. And, and it's not just in the church in Corinth where the gifts were being misused. That was the occasion for Paul to clarify what this is all about. And that's why 1 Corinthians 13 is in the middle 
of 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Because without love, you're just a clanging symbol. You're just annoying. So is it any wonder in that context? Now remember, we're talking about the first century. Okay? I am not trying to say this all needs to happen now. Okay? I'm saying this is what was happening in the first century. Is it any wonder that Paul would command them to not despise prophesying? If prophesying was an expression of somebody who loved you so much and they wanted to help you so badly that the Holy Spirit would give them something to say to you that was more than just their own personal opinion. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, Do not quench the Spirit. I know this can get annoying. (laughs) When you've got baby Christians who want to fix your life with power tools. Okay, Do not despise prophesying. Don't neglect this. Don't ignore this. Test all things. Yeah, there's going to be some stuff in there that's not right. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Because this baby Christian with a power tool is trying to help you. Abstain from every form of evil. <laughs> some, of these, some of these things that are said and done may actually be dangerous. I believe God wants you to sell your home and move to Corinth. Right? We need to stop and think about that for a moment. So when someone loves someone enough to want to bless them with a word from the Lord, they might not have been mature enough in what they said and did but at least they were trying to be used by God to bless others. Now, in such cases, one would kindly receive those efforts, first by testing whatever is said. This is where the phrase comes, eating the meat and spitting out the bones, right? Don't swallow everything somebody says. Secondly, one would abstain from every form of evil by not accepting whatever was known to be harmful or dangerous or foolish or unwise or any of that, regardless of how well-intentioned the speaker might be. Now, I, I, I want you to uh, realize you don't have to be charismatic to make some of these mistakes. Okay. You can just be a very opinionated person and try to run other people's lives. So Paul is telling us how to deal with that. So let's look at what this was like in action. And in fact, in the life of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 27, we read, In those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and they sent it to the elders there by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, who would eventually become Paul, the Apostle Paul. So in this case, Agabus got it right, and his prophecy saved many believers in Judea from starvation. So yay for Agabus. The guy delivered. He loved God's church. He loved God's people. 
And the Holy Spirit gave him a prophecy that was actually a predictive prophecy. As Jesus said, he will tell you of things to come. And that's what he did for Agabus. But Agabus could also be annoying. And so a little later we get this. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 10. And as we stayed many days, he's, he's staying here uh, in the home of, of Philip the evangelist, by the way, in Caesarea. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet with his belt. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those that uh, in that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. We assume since Agabus has got a track record of being right, that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when we could not, he, he could not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Okay, Paul, it's your life. You see, Agabus was not telling Paul anything he didn't already know. Having Agabus show up and give this prophecy just got everybody in an uproar. He was telling everybody this is going to happen. But as it turns out, Agabus was not quite right. In fact, he was substantially wrong. It was like, it was like the Holy Spirit handed him a photograph. And he sees a, a photograph of Jews rioting and Roman soldiers on horses and the Apostle Paul bound. And so Agabus jumped to the conclusion that the Jews had captured Paul and turned him over to the Romans. So let's read the passage. And it's in the same chapter. So we, we know that they didn't say, oh, maybe we need to fix that because, you know, that doesn't make Agabus look very good. But let's take a look at what actually happened. So the prophecy was, so the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Here's what happened. And the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now the fact is, they were not Greeks, but they didn't know that. They thought that they were the other guys that Paul had been with later, or earlier. So, all the city, that's all of Jerusalem, was disturbed. And the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So the crowd stops beating Paul because they see the Roman soldiers coming. And then the commander commanded him to be bound with chains. The commander commanded him to be bound with chains. And he commanded him to be taken into the barracks, carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. The Romans rescued Paul from the Jews. The Jews didn't turn Paul over to the Romans. 
the Romans rescued. That's a pretty big detail. So, should we take Agabus out and stone him for being a false prophet? No. Because you see, New Testament prophecy is not held to the same standard as Old Testament prophecy. It is clearly a different thing to prophesy in the New Testament than it was to say, thus saith the Lord, under the Old Testament law. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, New Testament prophecy was something that Paul and Peter would like to see everyone participate in, even as a baby Christian. Because it's not them, it's the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 16, we read, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it will come to pass, in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Even the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist, we're told, prophesied. And by the way, that's when Agabus showed up and came down from Judea. I think it's interesting how all these things kind of tie together. So we've got four daughters who prophesied. They didn't prophesy that Paul was going to be arrested in Jerusalem, but Agabus did. So what was the New Testament version of prophecy? New Testament prophecy was for edification. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Remember, they, they heard them speaking the wonderful works of God on the day of Pentecost. They're, they're speaking to God, not to men. So what would an interpretation of a tongue be? It wouldn't be, thus saith the Lord speaking to us. It would be the interpretation of praise and worship and prayer because it's directed toward God. You don't hear the charismatics mention that very often. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, uh, For he, speaks in a, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. He doesn't even understand himself. However, the Spirit, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. A prophecy would speak to others rather than speaking to God. Paul writes, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. The whole purpose of these gifts is to build up the church. They are not merit badges. They are not signs of spiritual maturity. They are gifts. If I give a chainsaw to a five-year-old, just think of the damage that could be done. And in a very real sense, that's what we have. The Holy Spirit gives power tools to baby Christians. And it's the responsibility of the elders of the church to help those baby Christians grow up and use those powerful gifts as they were intended to be used. And so in the early church, this is what we see happening. In 1 Corinthians 14, 39, Therefore, brethren, desire 
earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. As much of a hassle as it is, as much of a headache it is, as much trouble as it causes, don't shut it down, Paul says, any more than you would want to shut down these kids and make them stop playing and experimenting and learning and growing, right? The church is intended to be a safe place for the, for the people in the church to learn how to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. So clearly Paul saw New Testament prophecy as a way of building one another up. And so we come to our conclusion, our four exhortations here today. In this passage, the Apostle Paul urges the Thessalonian church to not quench the Spirit, to not despise or ignore prophecies, to test all things and to hold fast that which is good, and to abstain from every form of evil. With the answer to the question as to whether or not these four exhortations are dependent upon one another as a set or independent to be applied generally, I think the answer is both. They can, they can be very useful individually, but I think in the context of that New Testament church, they were being provided as a set of instructions to help the church there move in the gifts as they were intended to and not to misuse those gifts. They stand alone as commandments, but they also point to the specific situation that every local church had to face as the gifts of the Holy Spirit were operating so powerfully at that time. So today, we are the beneficiaries. We benefit from the instruction that they received, and whether or not we believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue to operate today, we would do well to meditate upon this passage and to understand what was going on in those early years of the church when the Holy Spirit was moving so clearly and openly in power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be glorified in this. Open our eyes to see the wonders of your word. As we meditate upon this passage, Lord, may you instruct us as to how we can apply each exhortation in our own circumstances. Lord, we want to be a church that honors you and glorifies you. So teach us, Lord, how to do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name.